Pray with me. Lord, we are so grateful for this day, for this week, which reminds us of your great love. A love which we can't even begin to fathom. And yet you came for us, Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that this week we would just latch on to that for each and every one of us, no matter where we are in our journeys. And that in so doing, Lord, we'd be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we would be the people you've called us to be in our day. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. On June 8, 1991, some of you may remember as Desert Storm was over and uh, that whole, our troops came home from that, uh, that mission, there was a phenomenal parade that went right down Constitution Avenue. Uh, you may remember it. I'd never seen anything like it. I was 29 years old at the time. Kimmy was pregnant with Zachary. You know, Becca was a baby, but, you know, to watch on TV, you know, fighter jets flying over the mall in formation and M1 tanks rolling down and our troops going down Constitution led by General Schwarzkopf, whether you agreed with that mission or not, it was an impressive parade. It took, it took years for the asphalt to get rebuilt after the tanks ran over it, <laughs> but it was impressive. And I thought about that event as I read this this week, and I go, isn't Jesus so different than our world's triumphs? You know, in the ancient world, a triumph was a victory parade of a conquering king or a conquering general. A triumph was when, if you conquered another city or state, you brought back their king some of their soldiers to be humiliated, some of them executed in front of everybody. It was terrible. But you brought them back, and you paraded them through the streets along with your conquering soldiers, with sacrifices to your gods. And at the end of the procession was, on a war horse, the king or the conquering general, or both. But it was not so with Jesus Christ. This king of kings is a new kind of king, one unlike any we've ever seen or ever will see. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. That's where we're going to camp today as we begin Holy Week this week. Recognizing first, how did we get here? Jesus was at the end of a, a journey that had begun some nine months previously in Mark, where he was purposely zigzagging through Galilee and Samaria and Perea and then finally Judea. And during the final year of this three-year ministry journey, he ministered to at least 35 different localities and had, um, it had been wound up purposefully in Jerusalem at this time. He avoided Jerusalem. He went in for Passover the first year, but he had caused such a commotion, and because of the ruler's animosity, he seemed to avoid it for a couple of years, even though it was a command that all males must go to the Passover. Jesus avoided it. And so, there he is at the Feast of the Passover, back in Bethany, 
expectations were growing. We know there in Bethany he had just raised Lazarus, so I'm sure people wanted to come and see the dead guy rise rose again, right? So the crowds are growing. Blind Bartimaeus had been healed in Jericho. Everybody's talking about him. And as he resided there, expectations that Messiah was here. The rulers were already plotting on how they might kill him. We know that in John chapter 12. And um, we also know that the pilgrims who were on their way for the Passover were already spreading news about him in Mark chapter 10. All that to say there is unparalleled tension in Jerusalem that hadn't been seen for generations. The, the older folks in this scene had never seen anything like it. Wherever anyone would go, everyone was talking about it. The Passover was days away with this in their mind. When would Jesus make his move? And what would the rulers do about it when he did? With all that to say, what we learn in this passage is the true king's great intentionality, the true king's triumph, and the true king's tears. Let's look at this. Mark 1 through 6, we learn of the true king's intentionality. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. It's amazing. Bethpage was a little village between Bethany and Jerusalem. It's about two miles on the slopes of Mount Olives. So on that first Palm Sunday, Jesus was walking in front of his disciples. Mark 10, 32, when they came to Bethpage. So here, Jesus sent two of these disciples into the village to obtain a donkey's unridden colt. As to how Jesus knew it was there, the scripture is silent. Perhaps. His heavenly father told him. Perhaps one of the disciples told him. We don't know. Whatever the case, we can surmise that the owners gave it to him because they had heard of Jesus and they trusted that they would get it back. And moreover, they probably were kind of honored that the, the coming Messiah, they, everybody heard of him. They were honored that they even asked. And in all of this, we observe Jesus' painstaking intentionality. He had carefully ordered everything. The day and the hour were selected from eternity, and now the countdown to the cross had begun. This and all the events of this upcoming week were intentionally planned by our sovereign God. Now, not only the time of his entry, but the mode of his entry. 
a previously unridden, unridden donkey was chosen. Think about it. Jesus never before had done anything to attract publicity. Every time a hint of it, don't say anything. Go show yourself to the priest, but don't say anything, right? He had never attracted publicity, but here he invited it. And he courted danger in doing so. And he did it with a great calculated purpose. Why a donkey, you think? Because over 500 years earlier, the prophet Zechariah had prophesied in chapter 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus consciously fulfilled this prophecy and even more so. He chose a colt on which no one has ever ridden. This was because in biblical culture, in the ancient culture in general, any animal devoted for a sacred purpose such as this would, had never been put to previous use. It was the donkey's maiden voyage, if you will. And so in addition to this, Jesus told his disciples that he would find the colt tied or tethered in Bethpage. This points to the Messianic oracle pronounced by Jacob to Judah in Genesis 49, where Jacob says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the fine and his donkey's colt to the choice fine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grace. Brothers and sisters, Jesus wants us to see these connections. By riding a donkey, he fulfilled not only Zechariah 9.9, but in Genesis, Jacob's prophecy to Judah. More, riding a donkey, contrary to what we think today, was a kingly act. David rode on a donkey. It wasn't until after David's reign that they picked up riding horses. Because it's a symbol of peace. It's a symbol of calm. He hasn't come to militarily take over. He's come to usher in a reign of peace. So our King Jesus intentionally knew what he was doing and rode a donkey into Jerusalem to fulfill all the great Old Testament messianic prophecies and identify himself in the royal line of Judah. Jesus' choice of the donkey told the whole world who he was but it also it proclaimed what he was like. Did you hear in Zechariah's prophecy that Messiah, as he came to Jerusalem, would be humble and mounted on a donkey? Jesus came peacefully, bringing peace, shalom to our violent world. 750 years earlier, Isaiah had prophesied that when Messiah come, 9-9, he would be the Prince of Peace. 
when he was born, the angels decried. They said, um, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now he rode into Jerusalem upon an animal of peace. Jesus told his disciples, peace I leave to you, not my own peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. The ancient church began the phrase which we say each and every Sunday. The peace of the Lord be always with you and with your spirit. We're wishing peace. That we're praying peace upon one another. It's, the, it's an offering of the gospel. Really? Our humble Jesus also said, take my yoke upon me and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, Matthew eleven twenty nine. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, Matthew 5, 5. <laughs> I told you there's no other king like Jesus. There, the, there's no comparison to this. The Alexanders, the Napoleons, the Axis powers of the 20th century, a total contrast to the triumphal entry of the ancient kings on their war horses, Jesus comes purposefully riding on a colt of a donkey. Now this week on television, all the pseudo-scholars are going to come out of the woodwork, I promise you. And they're going to portray Jesus as attempting to turn the world on history and then the world crush them. But in truth, Jesus was in control of every move like pieces on a chessboard. He rode past the Roman pomp and power toward the Jewish temple, perfectly displaying as Messiah, the Prince of Peace, humble and gentle. Jonathan Edwards described this scene this way. A lion excels in strength and in the majesty of his appearance and voice. A lamb excels in meekness and in sacrifice for human clothing and food. But Jesus Christ is both. Because the diverse excellencies of both lion and lamb are wonderfully met in him. Indeed, there is in Jesus Christ a conjunction of such truly diverse excellencies as otherwise would be utterly incompatible in the same subject. See, Jesus Christ comes with character traits, as Edwards would say, that would never be combined in any single person. Yet, here he is, gentle and lowly and powerful. Majesty with meekness. So you might be saying, well, what does this have to do with me today? A lot. Bear with me. That's the intentionality of our king. Secondly, we see the true king's triumph. Verse 7 through 10. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Blessed is the coming of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. All eyes are focused on Jesus at this time. And all homage is beginning to pour forth as he's approaching Jerusalem. He hasn't even arrived yet into the city gates, and they're, they're, they're proclaiming this. And not only do these exuberant followers throw down their cloaks, you know, their clothing on their as a saddle, some flung robes to the ground as a gesture of reverence. And that indicates a willingness to have him take everything. To, to trample upon my worldly train, uh, my worldly goods, if you will, as a possession. And it was a magnificent gesture by the crowd. There's a swelling and a mounting joy that's going on, kind of like what we feel on Easter morning as there's a buzz in the church before the great shout. Is he going to do it this year? Yeah, he's going to do it this year. You know? No, he's going to do it. Yeah, right. Okay, you see, the, the buzz, exciting, mounting joy. These were the Jews on holiday. They, had, they didn't have to work today. They were excited to be there. And Mark in verse 9, those who went before him, those followed, repeatedly shouting. This is an antiphonal chant. Those in front shouting, those in and behind shouting back. They're going back and forth with these words. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And can you imagine a Roman guard standing there going, say what? Someone's picking a fight. One of those lies mentioned regularly is from our psalm, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, verse 9, which we didn't pray. This was often used as a greeting for pilgrims. But it fit perfectly Jesus. Luke has them also saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This growing crowd is caught in a mass prophetic ecstasy as the long procession moved along the slope of the Mount of Olives going into the city. The other gospel accounts add to Mark's picture of joy. John tells us, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna. These palm branches which we wave, my friends, represent the nationalistic desire for the Israelites to be delivered. They're remembering that 150 years later, Simon Maccabeus delivered Jerusalem. And they, it was celebrated with songs and praise and palm branches being waved. And it was a symbol of that revolt, much like our American flag on the 4th of July being waved. We, we, we rejoice in the freedoms that we have. But this is tied together with their faith. And so Hosanna was a customary religious greeting. But on the lips of the fervent crowd, it was an anticipatory, save us, deliver us, rescue us. The people were prophetically speaking over and over that Jesus was their deliverer. Save us. 
Not even the disciples fully understood this until after he was glorified. John chapter 12. But Jesus was in control, and he's making a statement. Their words were his statements. The donkey he straddled prophesied his position as well as his person. Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, proclaimed his position. Hosanna described his work. Deliver us, O Lord. This was his moment, set before the foundation of the world. That's a triumph, unlike any triumph anybody in the ancient world had ever seen. And last, what we also see, which Mark doesn't mention, so we're going to turn to Luke chapter 19 at this point. What we're going to see also is the true king's tears. Verse 41 He's riding before him. As he takes the corner and he sees the temple. He sees the courts, the temple tower, all framed by gardens, and the whole city before his eyes. Verse 41 of Luke 19, the Savior began to weep. Never forget this. It was not with quiet tears that he wept at the grave of his dead friend Lazarus. This was with a loud and deep sorrow. There in the middle of the road with the great city is a dramatic panorama. The stunned multitude ceased their hosannas and heard the Lord of the universe wail over Jerusalem. Told you he's a different king. Jesus wailing turns to lamentation, verse 42 of chapter 19, when he says, Would that you, Jerusalem, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus saw this proud, unrepentant city of Jerusalem and that it would be a city reduced to nothing but rubble. And 40 years later it happened. And it's never been the same. Never. It's never recovered. Forty years later, Caesar ordered his crack general Titus. I'm sick of him. Tear it down to the ground. And they did. Leaving only the loftiest of towers, but the walls were gone. Titus came with a fierce rage that the forces unleashed upon Jerusalem. And when they barricaded themselves in, he surrounded it and starved them out. And as people died of starvation, the Jews lacked the strength to bury their dead. They just threw the bodies over the wall. 
so great was the destruction, as Josephus records, when Tinus, going his rounds, beheld these valleys choked with dead, he groaned and raising his hands to heaven, called God to witness that this was not his doing. Such was the situation of the city, writes Josephus. Jesus saw all this coming, and he wailed in grief. This was his heart in, toward all of humanity. But it also reflects the heart of the Father. It reflects the heart of the Holy Spirit. Think about this. Fix your thoughts on this. The beloved, gentle, and lowly Savior, the loving Heavenly Father, the blessing Holy Spirit, having sorrow over their hearts that Luke describes as miss their day. And the things that make for peace, namely, repentance toward God and placing their whole trust in the atoning work of Jesus Christ upon the cross for them. G.K. Chesterton wrote of this passage in this way. As your life stands right now, what does Jesus Christ see in your future? Judgment? Your towers pulled down? Desolation? The Son of God in tears? The wondering angels see? Be thou astonished, my soul. He shed those tears for thee. See, the tears of Jesus measure the infinite value of who you are, mind, body, and spirit. And he loves you. That's why he's coming to Jerusalem. He doesn't want to see that be your end. He desires that none should perish, but all should come to everlasting life. This is the true king. But he wept over those who would refuse to follow him, and he always weeps over those who refuse to follow him, and he will honor that if you choose not to. But when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he's letting people call him a king, and he's forcing their hand. See, you have to respond, don't you, to Jesus as king. You can't be neutral to Jesus Christ. You're either going to crown him or kill him. You're either going to have to receive him as your king or you're going to have to reject him as your king. But there's one thing you just can't do is to say, well, he's an interesting person. Mark is saying you can't relate to this king on the periphery of your life. If you try to keep him in arm's length, you're rejecting him. And you're killing him, Mark is saying here. You can no longer say, well, I'll come to God when I have a problem. No, you have to center all of your life upon him. And that's what Mark is saying. That's what Luke is saying. For he came to do what you couldn't do for yourself in securing your salvation upon the cross. How can you come to grips with someone who's given himself utterly for you without you ever giving yourself utterly to him? How? By turning all of our life over to him. 
And to fail to do so is not just an offense to your moral sense, it's a crucifixion of your intelligence. Have you truly received this king? Truly? Have you surrendered it all to him as he gives you his love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? He wants to. He can do that. It's a lifelong journey. And some of you might be thinking, well, I'm scared. I'm scared to give myself like that. Well, don't be. Because if you come to Jesus as a lamb, he's going to defend you like a lion. He will defend you to your own conscience. He will defend you against the world. He will defend you against the very onslaught of hell. Because you are his beloved child. Give yourself to him. Don't be afraid to him. And let his power reproduce his character in you. Because he's intentional, he's triumphant, and he weeps over those who refuse him. Let us not refuse him. Let us rejoice in him as he welcomes us into his presence saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. Let's walk the way of the cross this week, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Lord, we know that we're not finding your power reproducing Jesus' character in our lives as we ought. But we ask that each and every one of us hearing this would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, know the next step in that direction we should be taking. What we should be doing. For every person here, it's a little different. But we ask you, Holy Spirit, to help us apply this text and apply these great truths in our lives today. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.